0: not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we open the word of truth this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared to study God's word Through the use of 1 John 1.9, private confession of sin directed only to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood is the basis for forgiveness and recovering the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to study your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates all of our thinking and teaches us how we are to think and what we are to think. And we are to have our minds filled with your thoughts as revealed as the mind of Christ in the scriptures. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that we may gain a greater appreciation for all that our Savior went through in the incarnation, the first advent, and that we may have a greater appreciation of our salvation, that we may be motivated to greater response to your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, and we begin this week in verse 27. John 12:27. We come to the close this morning of an extended section of the Gospel of John. The first chapter was the prologue, introduced us to Jesus as the light. In Him was life, and that life was the light of the world. Then beginning in John chapter 2, we see the presentation of Jesus as the Messiah. We see the initial sign of turning the water into wine in John 2. We see the development right after that where he goes to the temple and he cast out the money changers. And from that point on, we see the hostile animosity of the religious leaders increase to the point that by John chapter 6, when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, they purposed already to put him to death. We saw the continuing animosity Throughout the 7th and 8th chapters is Jesus dialogued with the Pharisees and challenged their their religious assumptions. So much so that Jesus even confronted them with the fact that if they did not accept him they did not accept the father for he and the father were one. Which time they tried on one of two occasions to pick up stones and stone him but he slipped away. The realization that Jesus claimed to be God could not be missed. He not only claimed to be God, he claimed to perform the works of God, to be one with God. The acceptance of him as God, the acceptance of him was the same as accepting God the Father. Rejecting him was the same as rejecting God the Father. And now we come to the conclusion of this section. This morning we come to John twelve twenty seven, And this chapter really concludes a subsection, starting in verse 8, dealing with the entire theme of Jesus as the light of the world. When we come to the conclusion of chapter 12 today, Jesus concludes his public presentation and discourse in the nation. From this point on, starting in John 13:1, Jesus will begin to privately instruct his disciples on doctrines necessary for the new age, the age to come, which we're now in, the church age. So let's turn to John 12:27. We need to pick up the context because last time we saw the introductory events to this discourse that Jesus begins in verse 7. Two things had happened on this particular day. It began back in verse 12 with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Last time we saw that this was something that exhibited the humanity of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. We have trouble understanding and identifying with the humanity of Jesus Christ sometimes. He is 100% deity, and He is 100% humanity, united together in one person forever. He is undiminished deity. He is true humanity. His humanity is sinless and impeccable. There is no sin, there was no sin in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the Scripture teaches that He was tested, corrected translation, not tempted. Tempted has to do with an internal attraction to sin. He was tested in every category of testing, just as we are, yet without sin. And we will see one aspect of that in the text we're looking at this morning. In his humanity, Jesus Christ was subject to all of the frailties of the human race. As true, true humanity, 100% humanity, he was the second Adam. He was going to exhibit in the, in the first advent all of the character qualities that would have been expected of Adam had he been successful in resisting the temptation of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And one of the most basic aspects or character qualities demonstrated by Jesus is humility. Because it is humility, the Lord said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I did not come to rule and reign. It is that humility that is going to be the foundational virtue required for those who rule and reign with him in the messianic kingdom. And so Jesus enters into Jerusalem not on a horse which is a an animal that was used both in warfare and an animal of prestige. In other words, he did not enter in a in the latest model BMW. He came in in a Pinto, a Ford Escort, the conveyance of the common person, very humble, demonstrating his humility and the people rejected him now we saw last time that of course there was this very enthusiastic and emotional response to him and the crowds lined the streets they were camped out all around jerusalem josephus suggests that there were perhaps as many as two and a half million people religious pilgrims who were there in jerusalem for the passover feast and they would have, there would not have been enough room for them all to to stay in Jerusalem so they would have been camping out all around the city along the hills along the highways and so as Jesus rode on the donkey from Bethleh- uh from Bethel into Jerusalem they gathered they congregated there were some disciples who began to sing from Psalm 118 uh hosanna to to uh, which is the Hebrew for save me, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, and John notes this, even the king of Israel, which shows that the people had a false perception. Just as the Pharisees and Sadducees, when they met in the Sanhedrin at the end of chapter 11, looked upon Jesus as a political threat, they also interpreted his claims politically. They were operating on human viewpoint, not divine viewpoint, And they were looking to Jesus to bring in the crown without the cross. They were looking to Jesus to overthrow the Roman Empire and not to save them from their sins. So because they rejected his soteriological function in favor of his eschatological function, Jesus then, according to Luke, weeps over Jerusalem. The point is that we learned is that God rejects our emotionalism. It does not impress God whatsoever. And that even though there is this triumphal entry where the people are singing Hosanna to the Lord, they have rejected Him as Savior. And this is not acceptance, but rejection. On the other hand, while the nation Israel has rejected Him as Savior, we're told in verse 20 that that something else happened. There's another group of people involved. This is the only time in the Gospels we're told about this group, and as quickly as they come on the stage, they depart. They are simply brought on stage by the Apostle John because it is their presence that brought about some interesting, if not mystifying statements by Jesus, starting in verse 27. We cannot understand what he says from 27 to the end of the chapter, without paying attention to what happens in verse 20. Remember John's the only author who tells us about this episode. If you go back and look at the chronology of the day, there's the triumphal entry, and then John doesn't mention it here, but the other gospels tell us tells us that there is the cleansing of the temple. He did that twice in his ministry, once at the beginning and once at the end, where he threw the money changers out of the temple. And just after he cleanses the temple, there are these Greeks that want to have a a meeting with Jesus. Verse 20, now there were certain Greeks, that is Gentiles, these are not Jews, they're not proselytes. They are uh, Gentile believers who are truly operating on positive volition. They have come to Israel to worship at the feast. So we know that they were believers, but they had not come under the uh, domination or Mosaic law, entered into as a proselyte to, to the Jewish um, ritual and religious system. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And they went to Philip and Andrew and they said, we want to meet with Jesus. Now, they don't come directly to Jesus. Jesus has not had a ministry to the Gentiles. It's been to Israel. And so Philip goes to Andrew tells Andrew, Andrew scratches his head, I'm not sure what to do, let's go talk to Jesus. And they go and they tell Jesus, Jesus, there's some Gentiles out here who want to talk to you. Now, you never hear Jesus go and talk to the Gentiles. He doesn't go out and answer their questions. He doesn't grant them an interview. Apparently, he gives all that follows as an answer to Philip and Andrew, and then Philip and Andrew are expected to go back and tell these Greeks Jesus' answer. But it is the realization of what this signifies that causes jesus to say in verse 23 the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified previously he has said on three different occasions my hour has not yet come but now when the gentiles demonstrate their positive volition and the jews have demonstrated their negative volition this is a signal it is as god the father has tapped him on the shoulder and said son now's the time The Gentiles are ready. You must go to the cross before we can reverse what took place in the Old Testament. Now, let's stop a minute. We didn't go into this last time. If you go back into the Old Testament, dispensationally you have the age of the Gentiles. From Adam to Abraham. Just prior to Abraham you have the Tower of Babel which is the Old Testament ancient civilization attempt to unify one world government on the earth in violation of God's mandate to scatter and fill the earth. With the call of Abraham, God is calling out a missionary nation, Israel. He is going to call them out as sort of a counterculture movement to the whole world, and they are going to be a priest nation unto God, And God is going to use Israel to minister to the rest of the world, to the Gentile world. He promised Abraham in the Abrahamic Covenant that it is through your seed I will bless all nations. So God calls out Abraham and then after 430 years goes by and you have the Exodus in roughly 1446 B.C. And God... Calls the nation into existence at Sinai. As part of the Moses final address in Deuteronomy, he draw, Moses draws a distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews. Now this is fascinating background here. What we discover is that with this spiritual decline, we'll put the flood right here. The spiritual decline from the flood down from the Gentiles and their rejection of God, because of this spiritual depravity, God calls out a special nation through Abraham. In calling out a special nation in Abraham, God is leaving the Gentiles to their own devices. They are going to suffer the consequences of their rejection to God, and they are going to be left, according to Deuteronomy 5 and 6, They are left in their idolatry, and they are left under the domain of demonism. And it is not going to be until the cross that that shackle of demonism from Satan is going to be broken. And this is what Jesus refers to in the coming passage. Now, this doesn't mean that no Gentiles were saved in the Old Testament, for they were. But... God was passing over them to begin a new work through Israel, and they were left to their own devices and their own religions because that is the path that they had chosen. They had rejected God, the knowledge of God and God consciousness. They had rejected the revelation that they had been given up to that point in favor of demonism, so God gave them over to the depravity of their sin nature. That is Romans 1 19. And following. That's the background here. And now, God is, through Israel, fulfilling the Old Testament promise given to Abraham that he would be a blessing to the Gentiles. So when these Greeks show up, it is a signal in history. Okay. When... Uh, these Greeks show up it is a signal that there is going to be a major shift now in human history in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and look at how it impacts Jesus now that we've set the background again verse 27 Jesus says now my soul has become troubled and here we have the perfect passive indicative of the Greek verb tarasso T A R A S S O the perfect tense indicates that it is an intensive perfect and it is indicating that his the present results of a past action because this happened now he is going through this turmoil it means it's a word to use to describe a rough sea, something that has been stirred up, and you see all of this, this, he's unsettled, there's this emotional turmoil here. Now, it's very typical, as I said last week in Christian circles, we think when you're, we go to passages like um, Isaiah, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. We go to passages like Philippians 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and minds. So we say, look, as a believer, if you're really walking with the Lord, filled with the Spirit, applying doctrine, you're going to have this calm, this peace that surpasses all comprehension. But Jesus doesn't sin. And Jesus here is, obviously, because he is impeccable, he never loses this perfect peace, this absolute tranquility, supernatural contentment, never disappears. But at the same time, he's going through emotional turmoil. Now, let's look at the dynamics here. Remember the human soul. We break it down into various circles because they all interrelate and interface. That's why we draw it this way. Self-consciousness, we're aware of who we are. We have a mentality. This is the cognitive function of the soul. We have volition. We have emotion. And we have a conscience. Now, the mentality is where thinking takes place. Emotion is where response, takes place we go through life and we encounter various tests and circumstances and they may instantly generate an emotional response that emotional response then becomes a test how are we going to handle the generation of this emotion in our soul are we going to act on the emotion or are we going to act on the doctrine in our soul See, Jesus is faced with the fact now, the reason there is turmoil here is because the perfect, sinless, impeccable Son of God for all eternity has been perfect righteousness. It knows that within the week, He will be on the cross. He, we're told in the other Gospels that he, he prayed to the Father the night before He went to the cross, let this cup pass from Me. And the, His agony was so intense, the emotional turmoil that he was going through was so intense that that blood was forced out of his pores like sweat now he's not operating on fear he is recognizing that his perfect righteousness is going to receive the imputed sin of the entire of all of human history in a short time and this is something that he would rather avoid this is a billion times more painful than the physical suffering he will endure, the torture preceding the cross, the actual physical pain on the cross itself, where they take large nails and they just pounded, and they weren't sharp, they were dull, and they just pounded those nails through his wrists, and then his ankles onto the cross. And, they, and he was hung there, not like you see in the movies where he has sort of a little diaper on, but you were hung naked on the cross so there is the physical social shame plus the pain Uh, the absolute vulnerability of all of that was nothing compared to what he was facing as the impeccable son of God in coming into contact with our sin and so his soul is troubled now this is what happens is we are faced in certain circumstances where we have a test and there's all of a sudden this emotional response and you have the option. Are you going to respond to this emotional test by operating on emotion and giving rein to that emotion? Or are you going to operate on the doctrine in your soul and respond to that circumstance, not on the emotion of fear, worry, anxiety, or whatever, but on the basis of... Now, he did not have emotional sin. I don't want to imply that. But there was this emotional turmoil, nevertheless, in his soul. And so he responds how? Instantly, he utilizes the faith rest drill in the form of prayer. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. We see this model of the what I call the bullet prayer. It's almost saying it under his breath here. After he has heard about the the, uh, Greeks... He makes a statement in verse 24 and 25 about uh, being a servant, and then he says, Now my soul's become troubled, turmoiled, agitated. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And then immediately he's stabilized by doctrine. He focuses on doctrine so that he, instead of reacting through emotional response, which would go into sins of emotion. He avoids the emotional sinning by operating on the doctrine that's resonant in his soul. And that's the pattern that is set for us in handling our unruly emotions. Father, save me from this hour, but it is for this purpose I came to this hour. So instantly he reminds himself of his divine purpose and why he has been Why the first advent and why the incarnation? Now, we don't have time to go into all of the details related to all of his suffering on the cross. You can find that in Psalm 22. But he goes on to focus even more on what the real issue is. And the real issue in life, the ultimate goal for every believer as it was for Christ, is to glorify God's essence to glorify his person that everything we do should accrue to the maximum glorification of God he says three things first save me from this hour then he focuses on doctrine for this purpose i come to this hour and then third father glorify thy name and we know from a study of an isagogical study of backgrounds in jewish culture that names always reflected a person's essence or character. So it's not just a tag that is placed on something, but it is something that a name reflects the internal essence or character of the thing. So he says, Father, glorify your essence. And then a very interesting thing takes place. This is the third time this happened in the, during the Incarnation. It gets a direct, verbal, audible response from heaven. If you had been there with your Sony Walkman and punched the record button, you could have recorded the voice of God. Modern man has trouble with this. See, modern man does not really believe that God interacts in human history. Modern man, this is displayed in all the movies you see about Jesus. I know there's going to, I think there's one on television tonight. They always have these things. When God speaks from heaven, you don't hear anything. You just hear some internal voice. They make God a subjective impression on people. I remember some movie came out about Jesus in the late 70s, I think. And when you never see Jesus after the resurrection, all you hear is a voice, but... The, only the disciples hear the voice. Nobody else hears the voice. It's like it's a subjective thing. No matter what happens when Hollywood portrays this, they can't portray God speaking and interacting in human history because modern man cannot accept the fact they rebel. They, they, they are revolted by the idea that God is actually involved in the details of our lives. And this is exemplified by the response of the multitude In this passage, God speaks directly to Jesus. Now, some people may say, well, maybe this is like when Saul was on the road to Damascus and the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to Saul and Saul heard the voice, but those with him did not hear anything but sort of a rumbling. They didn't hear the specific words that Jesus said. This isn't like that. And we know that from the way Jesus Uh, what Jesus says about this in just a minute. The Father answers him audibly from heaven. There's a voice from heaven, and the Father says, I have both glorified it, that is, in the past, and I will continue to glorify my name in the presence. In other words, the plan of God is continuing in action throughout all of history, and it is through his interaction in history that God's character is magnified and glorified. But look at the response of the multitude in verse 29. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it, were saying that it thundered. This is the naturalist response, the atheist response. God doesn't exist, so it must have just been thunder. We have to explain God's working in purely natural scientific laws. It cannot be that God actually interferes in human history. It must be some other explanation. Because God, we know God doesn't exist. Their presupposition is such that they immediately reinterpret the evidence so that it no longer means what it, what it is. Now, we all know that when we witness to people, we like to use Christian evidences. And there's a place for that, but evidences are not going to be the convincing factor in winning the unbeliever to salvation because we've seen time and time again in our study of John how Jesus performs miracles, and there are those who, because they are positive to to God and God-consciousness, when they hear the gospel, they see the miracle, they respond with positive volition, and they know the miracle is evidence that he is who he claims to be, and they accept him as their Savior. On the other hand, there are those who are negative to God and God-consciousness. Many of the Pharisees, many of the other citizens in Israel, and when they see the miracle, they say, well, Lazarus really wasn't dead. It had to be a hoax. They immediately reinterpret the objective data so that it doesn't mean what it means so that they can be comfortable in their unbelief and in their rejection of God. So this is the way the first group handles it. They handle it on the basis of naturalism and they just say, well, it thundered. It had to be some natural explanation. We couldn't really have heard the voice of God. See, their presupposition that God doesn't exist determines how they interpret the evidence. This is why sometimes you can sit down and you think, well, if I could just prove that Jesus rose from the dead, wouldn't that convince the unbeliever that Jesus is who he claimed to be? Not necessarily. The unbeliever may just say, well, that is, you know, there's all kinds of odd things that have happened in history. Why don't you send that to Ripley's Believe It or Not as just another oddity in human history? The signs and wonders were credentials of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were never designed to convince or override people's volition. And the first response was the naturalist. The second response is the supernaturalist who's the mystic. Well, it had to be a spirit or an angel. It couldn't have been God. See, both groups have heard the audible, verbal voice of God. And instead of responding as Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 and submitting to the authority of God, they immediately reinterpreted it. It's not the voice of God. That couldn't have been God. We have to explain it some other way. And then in verse 30, Jesus answered and said to them, The voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. This is like, on the one hand in chapter 11, you have the sign of the resuscitation of Lazarus from the dead. Four days in the grave and now he's given life again. And here you have the verbal, audible voice of God from heaven. Between these two testimonies, it convicts the nation of their rejection of God. And so it is after this event that never again will Jesus publicly teach in Israel. Jesus said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes, because it will confirm you in your disobedience and your disbelief. Verse 32, and then he says, or excuse me, verse 31, now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Now the ruler of this world, according to 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and Ephesians 2, 2, is Satan. Satan has been the one who has had free reign throughout the earth from the time of the Tower of Babel all the way up to the cross. And now Jesus at the cross is going to establish the legal basis for ripping the kingdom away from the control of Satan. It does not get into come to fruition until the second coming, when the Lord comes back, and at that time, at, after the battle of Armageddon, Satan and the false prophet and the, and the Antichrist are cast into uh, shackles in the bottomless pit. But from Babel here, they have had free reign among the Gentiles. And now Jesus is saying, because these Gentiles have come to him, that's the occasion, he says, now it's time for judgment. At the cross, Satan will be judged, the world system, the cosmic system will be judged, and the result of this is that the ruler of this world is cast out, the shackles are broken, he will be defeated judicially at the cross, even though it will not be take place experientially until the second coming. And then John Then he says, verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now I want you to notice what happens here in the dialogue, because it's very interesting and it tells us that these Jews who are listening to him have been paying very close attention to what Jesus has been saying throughout his entire ministry. They have paid closer attention, I think, than some of you have paid. Notice what he says, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now in John's comment in verse 33, he tells us that what Jesus meant primarily by this statement was the kind of death, that he would be raised up on the cross. So he's foreshadowing his death on the cross. I will be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. Now look at the multitude's reaction in verse 34. They're going to question, they say, the multitude therefore answered and say, we've heard out of the law, out of the Old Testament, that the Christ, the Messiah, is to remain forever. Misinterpretation. They have confused the two advents. They think he's only going to come once. They do not understand that the cross must come before the crown. And they think that once the Messiah comes, he's going to remain forever. And they say, how can you say, notice, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Anybody notice anything there? Jesus did not say the Son of Man must be lifted up in verse 32. He said, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Hold your place. Let's turn back to John 3 just to see if anybody's paying attention. The Jews were definitely paying attention. John chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, referring to the episode back in Numbers when the, fiery, the, the, the Israelites were disobedient to God and in rebellion to God, and so God sent fiery serpents into the camp, and whoever they bit, they would, it was a fatal bite, unless they looked to the brazen serpent, a brass serpent that, that, that Moses constructed, and they lifted it high up on a pole, and if they looked to that, then they would be healed. And that, of course, was a typology and foreshadowed the cross. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Way back at the beginning of his ministry, he said the Son of Man must be lifted up. He did not say the Son of Man must be lifted up in John 12, but they remembered that he said that. And now after three years, we still don't understand what you mean by the term Son of Man. Who is this? What is the Son of Man? Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 35. Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Did Jesus answer their question? No, He did not. Principle. There are many times when you are presenting the gospel and witnessing to an unbeliever, they are going to ask questions that you do not need to and should not answer. Because the asking of the questions presupposes a certain view of things that is false. Sort of like asking someone, have you stopped beating your wife? If you say yes, well, you're in trouble. If you say no, well, you're in worse trouble. See, there are certain questions that have behind them a boatload of baggage, and their boatload of baggage is that they have completely misinterpreted the Old Testament and the whole concept of the Son of Man. And Jesus, now at the end of His ministry, has been teaching them over and over again. They have rejected that. Jesus knows that their volition is hardened. They are negative. He is not going to cater to their negative volition and try to answer the question. It has been answered again and again. Now... The son of man is a very important title. Why is it that Jesus uses this phrase son of man? We saw it initially in John chapter 1 when Jesus was talking to Nathanael and said you will see the son of man ascending or, or you will see the angels ascending and descending on the son of man and then it was used again in John 3:15 that the son of man must be lifted up. And we have seen that this is a hebraism and it is the same with the title son of God may have the term son of disobedience. In the same passage, we're going to see the term son of light. This is just a Hebrew way of emphasizing the noun that is in the genitive construction here, and it is used to, to emphasize, son of man emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ is a man. He is true humanity. Son of God is not a title to indicate descent but to indicate the fact that he is a 100% deity. A son of disobedience merely ascribes a certain character trait to somebody that they are disobedient. A son of light is a term for every single believer that by in our very essence as children of God, we are in the light. We are sons of light. It is not a phrase indicating descent, indicating parentage. It is to indicate a certain... Uh, Attribute. It is just an adjectival description. The term Son of Man, though, carries with it a certain amount of theological baggage that goes back into the Old Testament. Turn with me, hold your place there in John 12, and let's turn to Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision... Of four beasts. He begins to describe them in verse 3. Four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. Now these beasts all are going to represent different kingdoms in human history. Notice these are kingdoms of men but they are represented as beasts. Because man in his fallen nature, in his sinfulness, is characterized by more the characteristics of beasts, the qualities of beastliness... And not humanity. The first is like a lion has the wings of an eagle in verse 4. The second resembles a bear in verse 5. The third is in verse 6, one like a leopard. This represents Greece. The leopard attacks quickly just as Alexander the Great attacked quickly and in just a period of about three years conquered the known world. And then the fourth beast is described in verse 7. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth. Notice, it introduces a metal here, a metallic element that isn't in the earlier beast, indicating like, like machinery, it's, it's a mechanism to it. And it foreshadows, of course, the revived Roman Empire and the mechanistic nature of the revived Roman Empire and its lack of humanity. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And then look at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was ablaze with flames. His wheels were burning fire. river fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were uh, attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. This is a picture of heaven. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the great and final judge. And the books were open. And then we see down here, verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming. This is where that title derives. And it emphasizes his humanity. In contrast to all the fallen kingdoms of man, the great empires, which are represented by beastliness because they, because of sin it has destroyed their essential humanity. It is Jesus Christ who is true humanity, who is going to rule and reign as a true man and show what is involved in that. And that takes us back to that theme last week of the importance of having that grace-oriented attitude of humility and being a servant. Now let's go back to John 12. So this term, son of man, is loaded with baggage and again it challenges the entire concept of a political Messiah with the biblical concept of a savior from sin at the first advent now verse 35 jesus answer he says for a little while longer the light is among you we continue to see this theme from john 8 when jesus said i am the light of the world all through this section of john down through john 12 it emphasizes this aspect of jesus character and his ministry Light represents revelation. The revelation of God, the revelation of truth. And this is tied up and bound together in Jesus' very life. John tells us in the prologue, in John 1, 4, in Him was life. He is the core of His being. He is life itself. And that life is the light of the world. In His life, He comes to illuminate the world to the truth of God and to reveal God. John 1.13 says that no one has seen the Father at any time but the only begotten, that is Jesus Christ, the only begotten, He has oh, exegeted Him. He has revealed Him to us. Jesus says, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Let's do a little background here in terms of isagogics. In the ancient world, there was no electricity. There were no gas lights. You had to be home at night. At night, it got dark. As soon as the sun went down, it was black. There weren't street lights. It was, if you were out on the highway, there was the threat of bandits or robbers or, uh, wild animals, all kinds of dangers. And so as the sun went down, it would come quickly, and so you needed to get to your destination as soon as possible. And this is the background image that Jesus is using. It says the sun's almost gone, the light's almost gone, it's almost dusk, and then you will be in the darkness. You, the, take advantage of the opportunity that you have. In other words, you only get one chance in life in relation to the gospel. You might get that chance early, you might get that chance later. That one chance may involve several different opportunities, but you only get one chance. And once, this is how it happens. You're growing up, you reach a stage of God consciousness. At God consciousness, you become aware that there's something greater than you, and you have the opportunity to decide for or against God. Let's say you're positive to God at God consciousness. Then you go through life, and somebody gives you the gospel when you're 15, again when you're 19, again when you're 25, and let's say again when you're 50. Now, in the providence of God, it may take all four of those before you finally exercise positive volition at gospel hearing, and you're not saved until you're 55. Nobody knows that. See, our tendency is to put it off. Well, I'll deal with that later. What we're going to learn from this passage is that you might. Own, this might be all that there is. And what happens, you reject the gospel here. You reject the gospel. happens is you are hardening your heart you're building scar tissue on your soul and you are hardening yourself into negative volition and once you reject the gospel that's all the all that god has to do god can from that point on harden your heart that's what happened with pharaoh pharaoh had the opportunity of god consciousness to be positive he was negative He had opportunities to hear the gospel from Moses again and again. He chose negative volition. Once he took his position on negative volition, then God in his sovereignty could harden him because that's the natural process. It's difficult for us to understand, but that's exactly what we're going to face here in these next few verses. Jesus says, you only have one chance. While the light is with you, take advantage of it. That darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. You're in spiritual blindness. You do not even know the truth. In the Old Testaments, in the Psalms, we're told it is only in thy light, O Lord, that we see light. You can only know truth, ultimately, if you presuppose the truth of Scripture. Then in verse 36, Jesus says, while you have the light, believe in the light. That's the only condition for salvation, to believe in the light. In order that you might become the uh, voice of the verb there, I mean, excuse me, the mood of the verb there, the subjunctive mood indicates potentiality and it's up to your volition that you might become, ginomai, might become sons of light. This is what happens at salvation. At the moment you respond positively to salvation, you become, you have received the imputed righteousness of Christ So you, therefore, are characterized by light. You become a child of light. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, you are children of light, therefore walk as children of light. This is your position in Christ. Your experience may be different in carnality, but you are a child of light, therefore walk as a child of light. Now Jesus says this, while you have the light, believe in order that you might become sons of light. And then he leaves. These things Jesus spoke. And he departed and hid himself from them. This is the conclusion of his public ministry to Israel. But John goes on to give us the theological interpretation of these events. The divine viewpoint interpretation of what has just taken place. Verse 37, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing him. A few years ago, a man from Southern California, seems like some of the weirdest ideas come out of Southern California, came out with a couple of books, one called Power Evangelism, the other called Power Healing, and it was the birth of what came to be known as the Signs and Wonders Movement or the Vineyard Movement, and eventually gave birth to things like the Promise Keepers and, the so-called Toronto Blessing and Pensacola Revival, Laughing in the Spirit and all these other extreme charismatic heresies. And uh, the thesis underlying all of this was that if you really want to have power in your witnessing, and if you really want to have successful witnessing, then you have, it has to be accompanied by signs and wonders. Well, wait a minute. Jesus' witnessing was accompanied by the best miracles in the scripture. And people rejected him. How can you say you need to have signs and wonders in order to have effective witnessing? I mean, the whole emphasis on miracles just is designed to cater and pander to the emotions of, uh, of mankind. The scripture says that signs do not convince people. They provide evidence of the veracity of Jesus' claims, but it is not signs that convince people. People cannot come to know the truth unless the Holy Spirit makes it clear to them and then they exercise their volition to reject it. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing him. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet, this is a quote from Isaiah 53.1, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39, for this cause they could not. This is a harsh statement in the Scripture. It is the phrase, may dunamis. Dunamis means, d-u-n-a-m-i-s, means power or ability when it is joined with the negative may it means the lack of power or lack of ability for this cause why because of their initial negative volition there is a hardening in the in the soul for this cause they could not believe they were unable to believe And so we see that you have one chance at God consciousness. You have another chance at gospel hearing. But if you reject, then God is perfectly just and righteous at that point to harden the heart into that negative volition. Because you have made that decision. That is your responsibility. God is not shifting your volition at that point. He's not making these people negative. They have chosen that path already. He is going to intensify that in order to demonstrate his own essence and character in terms of glorification. For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Now that potential is not likely. They have already made a decision to reject God, to reject Christ, And so the Lord intensifies in them in order to bring about His purposes, which would be the rejection of Christ and His crucifixion. Verse 41, These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory. Notice that. Isaiah, in 600 B.C., was given the vision of God and saw God in Isaiah 6. He saw the glory of God and he also could look down the corridors of time and see the glorification of God at the cross. This is clear from what he says in Isaiah chapter 53, that he clearly understood the suffering of the Messiah and his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. Notice, this isn't just Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, but there apparently were a number of other members of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrins, members of the Jews. Remember how John has used that term again and again to describe that hostile element. There were many who believed, but look at it what we used to call secret agent Christians. Nobody knew who they really served. Somebody once called them, I don't know, this may date me too much, um, Somebody once called them Clairol Christians. You know, only the hairdresser, only God knew for sure that they were saved. They they are ashamed of Jesus Christ. They are ashamed that they are believers. But they are believers. It clearly states they will be in heaven and they were regenerate at this time. Many, even of the rulers, believed in Him. But because of the Pharisees, They were ashamed and would not publicly admit it. They were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So these are clearly believers, but their value system is still totally based on human viewpoint systems of approval. They're afraid of social ostracism. They're afraid of religious ostracism. So they're saved, but they're ashamed of it. Verse 44, now let's put this together. John tells us at the end of 36, these things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. And then there's almost like this parenthetical theological interpretation from 37 to 43. And then in 44 we get Jesus parting shot. As he turns around to leave, he cries out to the whole crowd there so that all can hear. He says, He who believes in me does not, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. His claims here are to claim that belief in him is the same as belief in God. Rejection of him is the same as rejection of God. It is his final indictment of the nation. He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And he who beholds me beholds the one who sent me. I have come as a light in the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. He is accusing the Pharisees, those who have rejected Him, as truly having rejected God. If you reject Him, you reject God. And if anyone hears my sayings in verse 47 and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. This was the purpose of the first advent. He came to die on the cross, but His very presence caused people to make a decision. The presence of light in the world caused people to, it forced everyone to make a decision to accept Him or reject Him. He did not come to judge, but His very presence forced a judgment. Verse 48, He who rejects Me and does not receive My sayings has one who judges him, that is, God the Father. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. It is the truth of Jesus' claim. The commandment here, the word here, that is spoken of is the simple gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not all of the Christian life mandates. It's just the simple command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day, for I did not speak on my own initiative. But the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. Okay, let's summarize. Nine points of summary, the Gospel of John up to this point. Point number one. John presents Jesus as the light of the world from chapter 8 on. As the light, Jesus is the revealer of truth, and what he reveals is life itself. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In John 8.12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have, shall have the light of life. So Jesus is the light of the world, and his revelation is life itself. Point two, Jesus is one in essence with God, and he alone is the revealer of God the Father. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus is one in essence with, the, with God, the Father, and He alone is the revealer of God the Father. Point number three: this revelation of God is inherently divisive. Truth divides. It immediately challenges men to respond with either positive or negative volition. John 3:19 to 21. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness, negative volition, rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth, positive volition, comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The light causes people either to come to it or to flee from it, but it forces A decision. Point number four. Though the primary purpose of Jesus at the first advent was not to judge mankind, but to be judged for sin, his very presence judges mankind. It's sort of a collateral effect. His very presence forces men to make a decision, and by that decision, they judge themselves. Point number five, those who are negative to God at God consciousness reject God and will reject the truth of the gospel. You see, if you're, you can be at God consciousness, you can be positive here and then reject the gospel at gospel hearing. But if you are negative here, you will, you may never hear the gospel. But if you're negative at God consciousness, you will be negative at gospel hearing. And therefore you are said by the Scriptures to be in darkness, to be blind to the truth. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that they have been blinded by Satan. Those who are negative to God at God consciousness reject God and will reject the truth of the gospel. Point six, those who are positive will eventually respond by faith alone in Christ alone at gospel hearing. Now, if you're positive to God at God consciousness, you may choose negative volition, but you can eventually be positive at gospel hearing even though it may take years. There may be years of negative volition. Think of the Apostle Paul. Years of negative volition. But he was positive at God consciousness, so ultimately it ended up with his positive volition. Point number seven in terms of review. Again and again, Jesus equates himself to God. His message is God's message. He works the works of God. He has the authority of God. God has He speaks the message of God. He is the revealer of God. To accept Jesus is the same as accepting God. To reject him is the same as rejecting God. Again and again, Jesus claims to be God. Point number eight. The more light Jesus gives, the more divisive the reaction. The more light Jesus gives, the more divisive the reaction. The longer he went into his ministry, the more truth he taught, the more signs and wonders he performed, the more miracles that demonstrated who he was, the more divisive he became and the greater the animosity and antagonism from the religious crowd. And then finally, verse 9, I'm point 9. The national rejection by Israel leads to his crucifixion, which then provides the basis for saving the entire world, Jew and Gentile alike. It is his rejection, the irony of it is his rejection leads to his crucifixion, which then opens the door to the salvation of the whole world in terms of God's blessing to the Gentiles through the Jews and fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is why there is a noted shift starting in the next chapter. Up to this point, Jesus has addressed the crowds. and Beginning in chapter 13, Jesus addresses only the disciples in private and He begins to teach them what they need to know for the age to come in the church age with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things in your word and to see how you have worked in history, how your plan has worked itself out, and how you have fulfilled all of your unconditional promises. We are aware of our salvation, that it is by faith alone in Christ alone, and that he went to the cross where he paid the penalty for every sin in human history. Father, there is anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without eternal life, we pray that right now you would, uh, they would have the opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. All that is necessary is that they, uh, accept Christ through forming words and thought alone, that they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Scripture makes it clear, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand and assimilate the things that we have learned this morning. And that you would challenge us with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.